Misirut is the threshold of heroism. The question is, how do I reach that point between the ordinary and the extraordinary and go beyond it? I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project. Lesson four, the path of Misirut. Misirut is the threshold of heroism. It's the activation energy that takes a story, a life journey, even history, past the boundaries of the expected. It's all about making the world more by giving more than we even have. You know, one of the hallmarks of heroism is that it breaks the bounds of the world. We know the classic hero myth, the journey, only takes off at the point of the fantastic. When answering the call, the hero breaks through into another plane, battling dragons and darkness, wielding powers previously unimagined. The shattering of the norm is also built into the very notion of a superhero. I mean, the spider bite, the experiment gone wrong, the alien landing, catapults the mild-mannered reporter from the ordinary into the extraordinary, all capes and webs and magic powers. Heroes without capes do this too, because simple actions become heroic when we refuse to play life safe and small. Everyday heroes break through the mold of expected behaviors and extend themselves and us into a better world. So heroism involves breaking bounds. The misirut, going beyond, growing beyond. And by definition, that gives access to more than there was in the world before. In our tracing of the Torah's heroic base, the path of Misirut is the threshold of heroism. The quest itself is for Tov, for that all-good, divine perspective on creation. And learning to see that Tov everywhere is the gate through which we must pass if we want to take the path of Jewish heroism at all. And the first true path is Avodah, because life is work. The heroic element involves putting our labor in service of the Tov in the world, cultivating it without and within, becoming its steward in creation. The second path is that of the Ivri, taking a stance on the world, because your labor is going to serve someone. But unless you take a stand on where you put that effort, you risk living life as a puppet or a slave. So hear the call. Take a stand. Choose some aspect of good that must be in your world. Now, if life stops there, seeing the good, working to make it real, standing for something that matters, it's unquestionably a gain for the universe, but it's not yet truly heroism. The heroic scale of a story begins with misirut, with the breaking through the bounds by giving more than you have. Recall for a moment our definition of misirut nefesh lema'an tov, going beyond, going beyond a limited sense of self for the sake of the goodness of creation that is heroism. Now, why is the phrase Misirut Nefesh specifically? It could have been Misirut Leva, going beyond the heart, or, or uh, Misirut Neshama, going beyond the transcendent soul. It's because Nefesh expresses that bounded aspect of selfhood. The vital force, where the tire of life energy hits the road of embodied action. Because all action happens through the agency of your Nefesh. And action is how heroes change the world. The nefesh is so wrapped up with the body that in the language of the Torah, it's called the blood, dam huha nefesh. And that's why misirut nefesh carries a powerful connotation 
of self-sacrifice. It's the giving of life for the sake of a larger, more encompassing, perhaps nobler existence. And embodied life always seems so limited in its nature. I don't know about you, but I'm often frustrated by the fact that I can't fly, breathe underwater, or even go so long without food or sleep. But despite these seeming limitations of the flesh, of the nephesh, I, and I believe humanity, are constantly lifted and surprised by what we can do when we really put our heart and soul into action. And that's why we discover we are a series with heroic potential through Misirut Nefesh. You know, our tradition speaks of five aspects of soul. There's the Nefesh, this embodied vital force. There's the Ruach, the emotive, more expansive. There's the Neshama, that transcendent soul which we access through the intellect, but really gives us our key to eternality. There's then Chaya, the life force flowing into us all. The life I have and the life you have are part of one thing. And ultimately, Yechida, that point of connection to the infinite that we all share. I can send you, by the way, if you send me, gmail.com, or, you know, go to jewishheroism.com and send me a message. I'm happy to share with you more on the meditation of Naran Chai. But for now, what it tells us is that there's a past within of Mitzirut Nefesh as well, right? If Nefesh is the seat of action, I can use it to tap heart, soul, the flow of life, and ultimately the unity of creation through those specific acts. And when I break through the inner bonds, inner bounds even, of self, bringing wholeness beyond the limits of nefesh to bear on the things that I do, well, then the potential to affect tov, the good of the world around me, is on another scale. It might even be heroic. So the Mesirut, path of Jewish heroism that lies inwards is really about learning to live your nefesh, not as a bounded, limited existence, but as a point of contact, point of contact with greater self and with the infinite creation that you express, all engaged, access, even actualize through misirut nefesh. So what is it? Well, when it comes to giving a definition of misirut, you can probably already sense this is going to be a little bit messier than what we've done before. In text, in the Torah, that home-based principle, right, finding meaning in first appearance that helped us understand Tov, Avodah, and Ivri, is going to be necessary, but it will really be insufficient. Just in looking in the text of the Torah, I stumbled on three different root combinations of Hebrew letters that are going to require consideration, and we'll get there. Again, the source sheet's on the website, jewishheroism.com. But for now, anyway... Grammar and etymology can only take us so far in tracing the Torah's heroic face altogether. Ultimately, the story must be our guide. And as the threshold quality of the heroic, telling the story of Mesirut is complicated. I'm going to offer you both a biblical facet and a historical facet before we're done. But before we can even get to text or those tales, I think we better start with a metaphor. It'll probably help us get a grasp on the question. Now, don't be afraid, but I want to talk a little science. So I brought a prop because you see, the world is filled with potential energy locked up in structures of order, chemical, physical, or otherwise like these matches. You know, there's the wood here. There's the chemical on the tip, heat and light just waiting to happen. Now, what that potential requires to be manifest is what we call 
activation energy. It's just a little bit more than what's already present that can push it into what might be like the heat of friction. And suddenly, we're over the hump. Just a little bit of energy added, and the carefully contrived potential is released. In fact, even to consumption, because a match has limits to what it will achieve on its own. Now, there are two things the metaphor of the match can teach us about Misirut. First, it's the idea of activation energy. The match will stay wood until it's scratched. Only then we will see the potential it's capable of, because the potential good in creation stays unmanifest until we are Moser Nefesh. And when we push just a little bit past the expected boundaries of a moment, then we might discover what's truly there. Activation energy. The second lesson of the match about Monsieur Nefesh is really in its burnt end. The match is ripe to light, but limited in potential. The chemical setup is all about being exothermic. <laughs> it's about giving off energy as soon as a little bit is added, so it doesn't require much to get it over the hump. But the power wrapped up in the stick of wood also isn't so impressive. But if we let this match represent a moment, things might appear different. Because then, if I strike it and let it burn, but drop it into the dry duff, covering more of a stand of ponderosa pines, perhaps, it could take down the whole forest. And what if, somehow, rather than scratching, I could split the atoms in this box of matches? Then... The potential is enormous. That tells us that potential in any moment is actualized through misirut, but it must be understood in a couple of ways. First, a little misirut can go a long way if applied right. Just strike, drop, and watch the world burn, right? And also, sometimes a seemingly small moment, if it's met with a different type of misirut, one that's focused and powerful, has untold potential. I mean, all it took was a simple chemical compound and some friction to release the heat and light bound up in those matches. But think of the complex, powerful mechanism that would be required to unleash its atomic potential and the scale of energy you might witness. We're going to explore this very important intersection for heroism between Messirut and the moment in the seventh path. That's Queen Esther's story of the eight the heroic moment, but for now, just reflect for a moment that when done with absolute devotion and truly wise means, Monsieur Nefesh doesn't just get things over the hump as actualization energy. It can tap the deep, dare I say, infinite divine potential good in almost any moment. Okay. So we have a metaphor of activation energy. Now it's time to talk a little text. The first appearance of our word, Misira, is likely Limsor, to hand over, and it comes in the book of Numbers, and they handed over from amongst all the thousands of Israels, a thousand per tribe. The context is Israel assembling to fight Midian during their journey through the wilderness each tribe being called to hand over a tithe of its strength for the war. Now, this is our first usage. Limsor means to give, but beyond the grammatical, this first use of misirut in context of war teaches us an important nuance of meaning. Because when we speak about misirut 
we're not just talking about a physical act from hand to hand. It has shades of something which is offered up. And with all its evil, war has been consistently the most potent source of actualization energy in human history. It's often what pushes societies over the hump and though quite destructive, in the end brings out the potential within them which might have remained otherwise unrealized. And that only happens when individuals are willing to give themselves over to the cause. Because I can be most nefesh on the personal level. I can focus my energy toward tapping into my heart, my soul, the greater energies of life, creative, intellectual, or otherwise. And I can literally give my life for the sake of something larger, like a soldier who dies in defense of his people. Now, in the Torah's heroic story, this first appearance of Misirut is for the sake of getting to the good land. Remember the good ones who received the good in order to tell us what the quest was all about? Well, they're on their way to the good land here. And even if this act of Misirut handing themselves over to wage war should destroy the individuals, that Misirut won't be a diminishment or destruction of the self. It's an elevation in service of actualizing a vast good. So, if we're willing to loosen our grammatical requirements just a little bit, then we can find that in addition to giving over, Misirut has an element of binding as well in its meaning. One who binds themselves with a vow in the language of the Torah is Le'esor Isar al-Nafsho, right? Binds themselves with a binding commitment on their nefesh, on their actions, of course. Or perhaps you know that we praise God as Matir Asurim, the one who releases the bound. Now, the etymological connection here is a bit fuzzy. Look at the source sheet on the website if you want more. Otherwise, you're just going to have to trust me. But the aspect of meaning which it adds is crystal clear, right? This is the type of binding that creates a new reality which otherwise never would have been. A vow does this through an act of commitment. I mean, if I vow never to eat carrots, something which was totally normal and commonplace now becomes an expression of my commitment and the violation, God forbid, the opposite. Or take the prisoner bound in jail. You know, Jeremiah speaks about the Ahema Yahda Shavuol, right? They all shattered their yoke. Nitku Moserot, they burst their bounds. A prisoner is in Moserot. It's a different reality. Now, most of us, if we've tasted this element of Misirut, have found it in the positive side of binding committed relationships up through and including the covenant of brief marriage or with God. You know, powerful commitment to a connection draws greater potential out of the self and out of the world. I mean, after all, what hasn't been done for love? You know, that's this aspect of misirut, which is an attachment to a new reality, a reality that lies beyond the normal physical, psychological, spiritual barriers that we think make up our world. It's a binding commitment, powerful enough to get us over the hump of activation energy and unleash potentials through that commitment in self and in the world, which otherwise never would have come to be. Okay, third one. So we've got giving over and we've got bound to. Now comes the time for chastisement. Because if we loosen the bonds of grammar just a little bit further, the sirut carries the full range of this uncomfortable word from instruction and correction to punishment and suffering. 
That very same passage where Jeremiah speaks of the Moserot, the bonds, the prophet adds, You smote them, but they felt no pain. You consumed them, but they refused to receive correction. Musar. You know, in today's religious language, Musar means ethical, moral instruction. And anyone who has ever tried to get a deeper grip on their moral behavior in any way knows that passive instruction doesn't generally do it. It takes a harder hand. There needs to be an element of active correction. And frankly, when we accept the fact that sometimes hard lessons are the only ones that bring the change we seek, then we see that the distance from Musar as moral instruction to Yisurim, which is suffering, is not so great. The word Misira embraces everything from the inevitable pain of human existence. Getting up every day is embracing the challenge to the divine punishment sent to guide and purify us for the consequences of our wrong actions. And if we want to touch this meaning in Misirut, I at least look to Ezekiel, another prophet, who said the following. He said, I've passed you under the staff like a shepherd counting his sheep. And I bring you into the Mesoret of the covenant. Now, I leave that untranslated because the classic commentators really struggle to put a finger on a unified meaning of what does Mesoret actually mean in that verse. Some lean toward our definition of giving over, and they read it as, I shall bring you into the covenant I have given you. Others insist, no, 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 this is all about binding. They read it as, I shall bring you into the covenant with which I have bound you. And the rabbinic mind in the Midrash, ever sensitive to the deeper realities of life and generally not overly concerned with the finer points of grammar, reads the verse as, I shall bring you into the suffering of the covenant. Rish Lachis says, refers to a covenant with salt, and it refers to a covenant with suffering. Right? And he quotes our line, brought you into this suffering of the covenant, and then says, right? just like salt sweetens the flesh of the sacrifices, so too suffering cleanses the body of man. Now, that's a painful idea. It's a whole world theological view finding expression, and not a simple one at that. For present purposes, anyone who has pushed through the pain knows this element of misirut. Sometimes we learn it through commitment to an achievement goal. No pain, no gain. And the lesson of suffering isn't just in overcoming. There's much we can learn about ourselves as we experience those difficulties. Others have learned this aspect of misirut through an embracing of the realities of life, like loss, mourning, and the breaking challenges that sometimes get served up. Because if we can't find a point of transformation in that pain, even one as basic as the decision to choose life every single day, then our survival will remain in doubt. And both of these processes, the chosen and the existential, have a possibility to release potential of unexpected magnitude. Whether we like it or not, suffering can strip away our limits. It can teach us what those limits are and push us right past them. Misirut can be experienced as a moral chastisement, a muster lesson, ethical moral instruction given by 
whomever you like, life, God, or the powers that be in the world. And when it comes to this aspect of misirut, beyond offering up or binding to, the question we should keep in mind is whether we're ready to shrink or grow through that pain. Okay, beneath the metaphors and beyond our textual considerations, we have the story. And Yitzchak's story, Isaac, is the story of Misirut. It's all about handing over, offering up, binding to, breaking the bonds, and the suffering that these things often entail. So much so that I would call Yitzchak the archetype of Misirut. And when I use that word, I'm using it in the sense that psychoanalyst Carl Jung, whose thought underlies much of what the general world uses to understand heroism, I'm using it in Jung's sense. He calls it the roots of being, the archetype as the descent of spirit into human consciousness. And because of this, Yitzhak Misirut isn't just a story. It's not just his life. It's something that we can all embody in our own way. And frankly, that if we want to break through to heroism on our own life journey, or for the sake of the goodness of creation, then we're going to have to. From the beginning, Yitzhak's very existence stands as a reminder that things can come from beyond. I mean, he's born in an impossible circumstance. 100-year-plus-old father and his nonagenarian wife. And in fulfillment, he's born in fulfillment of an inconceivable promise. One child so late in life will be the beginning of children greater than the stars in the sky and the sand at the seashore. He is a story which defies the very notion that there are limits to the goodness of creation. And his name says it as well. He receives it before birth because he embodies this boundary-breaking facet of Messiru. Gitzchak is laughter tzchok, and it's a specific type. It's the laughter which bubbles up when we face the impossible fulfilled. Right? That wild, boundless feeling when the limits drop away and you face the abyss and it smiles back at you. So when it comes to embodying Messiru, we have to recall that Yitzhak is also the beginning of what we call the Mesorah, tradition. Right? Tradition, Mesorah, is that which is handed on, offered over as instruction from generation to generation. And there is no Mesorah without Mesirah. There is no tradition without a handoff. And if it's going to be a lasting tradition, that handoff must be a binding element. Abraham, the Ivri, made a breed. He made a covenant through which he became a committed partner in creation. That was a personal stand, as befitting his role as the Ivri, Yitzchak, will be the first to receive that covenant from someone and commit at the same time to handing it on. He is the beginning of Misorah. But beyond his name, his nature, or the role that Yitzchak plays in the unfolding story of Hebrew heroism, there comes the personal heroic moment, his absolute embodiment of Misirah. I'm speaking about the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. When Abraham offers Yitzchak up on the altar to God, and where Yitzchak is Moser Nefesh Lamantov, goes beyond, grows beyond his limited self for the sake of creation in totality. And in so doing, binds the power of Misirah into the entire story of Jewish heroism, which will follow him. Now, what's the story? First, I got to say, if you haven't been moved by the story of Yitzchak's binding on the altar, either you haven't read it yet, or you weren't paying attention when you did. And when I say moved, I include disturbed in that category. I mean, 
child sacrifice is an edgy topic. And the very request to Abraham to sacrifice his son raises profound questions about the nature of the covenant, about the nature of God with whom he made that covenant. So before we get started, a word of advice. There are many things in the Torah which disturb, in fact, many which are meant to disturb you. When you rub up against them and you feel that discomfort, it's a call to go deeper. It's a call for engagement. But just know, there's way more to a truly moving story than being bothered by difficulties. So I'm going to give this one pass. And frankly, not the deepest we could do, but take it as a call to do more on your own. For Abraham, the story of the binding is the story of his 10th test, last and greatest act of faith, the final mark in bringing the wholeness of himself to expression within this covenant that he's made. For Yitzchak, it's the story of being offered up in his wholeness. By the way, not just offered up, but offering himself, because it's crucial to understand that while Avraham's perspective is himself as actor and Yitzchak as object, not so for Yitzchak. He's handing himself over both sacrifice and the one doing the offering, entirely willing, only bound on the altar lest he flinch and ruin the cut at the last moment. So it starts with this request for an inconceivable act, right? God says, offer your son, who is also the promised future of this covenant, on the altar, and Abraham sets out with Yitzchak and his two servants. After three days' journey, he looks up and he sees Mount Moriah in the distance. He sees, as our sages say, a shining cloud over the mountain, and he knows he's arrived. So he tells his two servants to wait. And then our story really gets going. It says Avram took the wood of the offering and he put it on Yitzchak. After all, we all carry our own potential within us, right? He took the flame and the knife, the two ways in which we actualize potential. And the two of them went together. That phrase brackets the coming words. The only words, in fact, that Yitzhak speaks throughout this whole essential heroic moment. The first use of they went together is to show that Abram just like Yitzhak. Yitzhak's walking light of heart toward Moriah. As far as he's concerned, this is a field trip. He's innocent of his fate. So too, Abraham walks light of heart, not ignorant, in full knowledge of the plan, but also in wholeness of faith. The second use of the Yelchush name Yachtav at the end will come after that innocence is gone. Because Yitzchak calls out to his father, he says, Father, and Abraham says, Well, here I am, my son. And that word Hineni, here I am, is a depth of presence which is the opposite of Adam's failure. When God says, Adam, Ayeka, right after that eating of the fruit, where are you? And Adam hides. Hineni is the deep engagement. Abraham isn't hiding from anything in this moment. And Yitzchak says to him, well, here's the flame and the wood which they will actualize. Where's the lamb for the offering? Notice he can't even mention the knife. The tension in this moment is a dawning realization that there's something missing or something present which he has yet to understand. And then Abraham gives an answer. And what he says all hangs on a comma. He says, Elohim It could be read in two different ways. God sees the offering, my son. Or, God sees the lamb for the offering, my son, i.e., you're it. And our sages, indeed, read it in the second mode. They say, 
that in that moment, Abraham made clear to Yitzchak what was covering, that he was the offering. And Yelchu Shnehem Yachtav, the two went together. Now Yitzchak, like Abraham, in wholehearted readiness to give everything he has, everything he is, more really than he knows, all up to God. And how does he continue so smoothly toward the abyss? Well, there are two elements of inner psychology we can learn here that can make our Masiru possible. First is, if you want to be able to give over when the crucial time comes, learn to hold lightly to what you have. Don't grip the things or even your own life too hard. Yitzchak knew his own story. He knew his life was a gift, one that had been given and could be taken. And so he was ready to give it back to raise it up even in offering. It's a tremendous opportunity, in fact. The other piece of spiritual psychology we might take for Yitzchak's willing approach to the altar, which hopefully can help us in the Mesira that we may be called to in life, is to understand that if we want to be more than we are, we do it by binding ourselves to something larger of our own free will. If he had been offered by Abraham rather than offering himself, then this wouldn't have been the story that it becomes. Abraham heard this plan from God. And now, even though our sages stress the idea that it was a request and not a command, nonetheless, I mean, would you say no to God? Hey, can you do this for me? Nah. Yitzchak, on the other hand, heard it all from his father. That's Mesirut Nefesh on a different level of freedom. That Mesirut for the sake of Misora, he's handing himself over, offering himself up, in recognition of how he is now choosing to be bound in the covenant that his father had made with God. And in so doing, he makes that misira real on the highest level of human agency. And so the two went together, and the story goes on. Now, spoiler alert, Yitzchak doesn't die. And we get a painstakingly detailed process of Abraham building the altar and setting up the wood and binding his son and even stretching out the hand to reach for the knife that will know. And there's an amazing, amazing continuation of the story that involves blessings and promises and revelations. I encourage you to go deep with it. But right now, I don't want to talk about Abraham. I want to take a moment to consider something that is absent from the text. And that's Yitzchak's experience of being bound to the altar and then coming down off of it. I mean, whole books of existential philosophy have been written about Abraham's experience, the three-day journey to Moriah, the transformation he undergoes in holding two mutually exclusive truths. Yitzchak is your future, now offer the future on the altar, and still moving forward. But our world lacks a parallel exploration of what it was like for Yitzchak to be bound there and how he lived once he got down. His approach to the altar embodies that aspect of Nisira, which is offering up, as I said. His actual binding? Now, I said the world lacks an exploration, but that isn't entirely true. There's an echo, maybe we even call it a thread, that can be traced through Midrash and the Putim, the spiritual poetry, which is an important part of Hebrew liturgy. And it says that Yitzhak actually was sacrificed, contrary to the way it's written in the Torah. That Abraham cut his throat, spilled his blood, and burned him as a whole offering, and 
that Yitzchak's ashes rest eternally before God's throne as a reminder of that absolute misirut. And even though on one plane, he gets down off the altar, goes home, gets married, raises a family, even has to make a living. On another plane, Yitzchak is forever the Ola Timima, the perfect whole offering. Now, this is not an idea that can be grasped as a point of information. It's an image that has to be contemplated as a practice, so much so until it's bound up in our consciousness. Hence, the fact that the story of the binding is built into the morning liturgy. Because if we're going to internalize this aspect of misira, which is binding ourselves to another higher reality, not just to be offered up, but transformed by it, then we have to meditate on how Yitzhak was both a whole offering and had a whole life ahead of him. Okay, last but not least, there comes the suffering. Yitzhak's readiness to offer himself serves as the activation energy for many things through time. It struck the first spark that ignited all future practice of sacrifice, be they literal, in the sense of the service that was done in the Holy Temple, built on that spot where he was bound at Mount Moriah generations later, or be it in personal consciousness as we recite the story of his Mesira every day, or be it in our own collective story. You know, it probably wouldn't surprise you that when asked what biblical image they find most evocative, American Jews will generally answer the Exodus and specifically the splitting of the Red Sea, while Israelis almost invariably say the binding of Isaac. That's because we live a story of children who sacrifice themselves for the covenant of their people. And no matter the good that may come to light through that misira, through that giving, it's bound up with suffering. So here, I just want to offer you an image, which contains a bit of a warning as well. The sages say that when Yitzchak was there, bound on the altar, he looked up and he saw the angels of the presence weeping. And his eyes went wide in surprise at their emotion and their tears fell in. Now, years later, after a life of Nisirah, when Yitzchak faces his final challenge of handing on the covenant to one or other of his sons, the Torah says that he was blind. And we'll come to the story. But for now, just know that Yitzchak was blind from those angelic tears. That suffering may be an unavoidable part of Misira. That pushing through the pain with purpose can make suffering into Musa, the deep life lessons which remove our boundaries and give us so much we otherwise would have never had which can't really come without pain, but that suffering, especially the suffering that brings us wholeness, can often blind us, be it to the reality of others or many other things in the world. And so Yitzhak gives himself over the covenant, binds himself to God on the altar, breaks through the bounds of reality by being both sacrificed and living man, and becomes the archetype of Misirut. Yitzhak is its roots of beings and the descent of the spirit of Mesirut into our collective consciousness, as Jung would say. And as such, he makes Mesirut an essential quality, the fourth path of Jewish heroism. So in conclusion, I just want to touch lightly an example of how that archetype finds expression in history. Now, if ever there was a hero 
whose misirut, who's going beyond and breaking through, was a match that sparked the fires of the Jewish story, it was Theodore Herzl. Now, who was he? Look it up if you don't know. I'll just tell you, moderately talented Jewish boy making his way in the modern world of 19th century Central Europe. His professional life as a journalist author never really passed the rise of capable, maybe mildly talented, and we came from good rabbinic stock, but nonetheless, his life as a Jew, for most of it, was superficial. However, he had potential, like a match, just waiting to be struck. And for Herzl, the friction that, occasionally, that eventually caused him to catch flame was anti-Semitism, not the first Jew in history to rub up against that pain. The Jewish question, what to do with the Jews in the modern world, would not let Herzl rest. His journals are filled with the pain and with wild ideas that he was willing to consider of how to answer that burning question before he finally came to the notion of the Jewish state. Finally, 1894. He's on his way home from a meeting. He went to the all-powerful art critic of the New Free Press, for whom he worked, to try to convince him of the rational basis for anti-Semitism. I have to like about as 19th century as you can get, when suddenly on his way home, he has a deeply irrational experience. He's accosted by two young men who call him Sao Yu the Jew pig or dirty Jew. And in his journal that night, Herzl records that this seemingly small incident, certainly not the first experience of hate he'd ever had, nonetheless brought his thoughts to a boil. And after three weeks of feverish exaltation, the new ghetto was written, a play which, while it might have questionable literary merit, tells us quite a bit about what was happening in Herzl's heart. It was his cry against the debased, ignoble Jewish life in Europe. The original version of the New Ghetto, it got softened after publication, ends in despair. The protagonist, young Jewish lawyer Jacob Samuel, lies dying on the stage, wounded in a duel that he himself provoked in an attempt to save his honor, and he cries out to the audience, presumably at this point, all Jews. Oh, Jews, my brethren, they won't let you live again until you learn how to die. You hear it? I want to get out of the ghetto. Melodrama, but to the point. Herzl has realized that his old life will have to burn away, that he's going to have to break through. He and the rest of the Jews are going to have to go beyond in order to make the future happen. And that was only three years before the first Zionist Congress, before he somehow pulled together critical minds and activists of Europe in order to forward the rebirth of Jewish national existence. Three years before the first Zionist Congress and only a decade before Herzl's untimely death. Because the flame that lit within him was powerful enough to ignite a nation and to consume him as well. As Herzl told a friend, on the day before he died of a heart disease, basically gave his whole heart for his people, I gave my heart's blood for my people. If we want to understand the power of Messir Nefesh to transform an ordinary person into a hero, we should learn Herzl's story in full. You can go to the Jewish story, by the way. You find him in season one. But for now, I just want to end our current episode with this. A few months after the First Zionist Congress, Herzl published a short story entitled The Menorah. It's a thinly veiled autobiographical piece about the personal transformation he'd undergone 
in making that first Zionist conference happen, right? After all, just two years before the conference, Herzl had been putting up a Christmas tree with his kids, and now he's writing a story about the menorah. It's a story that expresses the power of devotion to change self, and through that, to change the world. It opens with the line, once there was a man who deep in his soul felt the need to be a Jew. Now this is a key to unlocking Mesirut. You have to feel that need within yourself and give yourself over to it. And then Herzl gives us just a little taste of what his life must have been like, the suffering he had to push through once he was awakened to his mission. People ridiculed him behind his back, he writes. Some even laughed in his face. In a patient way, our man displayed the courage of his conviction over and over again. I mean, courage of conviction is a hallmark of the truly heroic. And then, having pushed through all resistance to touch his true self, of course, he takes action. Remember, Monsieur Nefesh is all about the action. And he says that in previous years, he'd let Hanukkah fade. But now, however, he used it as an occasion to provide his children with a beautiful memory for the future. He wanted his Mesirut Nefesh to become a Masora. He wanted his sacrifice to become something he could hand on to his children. And he says the occasion became a parable for the awakening of a whole nation. First one candle, it's still dark, and the solitary light looks gloomy. Then it finds a companion, he writes another, and yet another. The darkness must retreat. And when all the candles are ablaze, everyone must stop in amazement and rejoice at what has been wrought. And he concludes, no office is more blessed than that of a servant of this light. Herzl's devotion to the Jewish people not only ignited him, it consumed him. And yet his willingness to give all, to give in fact more than he dreamed he ever had, illuminates the Jewish story ever since. I can look out the window and see its light. And so he teaches us something very important about what it is to be Moser Nefesh. He says, Blessed be the servant of the light, even should they be consumed by the flame. Okay, before I sign off, making a call for feedback, RavMikeFoyer at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook, RavMikeFoyer. This is a new project. I want to know what you think. You can also start seeing some new video content, short videos on Instagram, Jewish Heroism Project. Find me on Instagram. It's a whole new world out there. I want to thank all the folks who give their hard-earned money. Go to the website, jewishheroism.com, and you will see not only the supplementary videos and the source sheets and practices meant to transform this from interesting contact content into transformative journey but you can also hit that button in the upper right hand corner that says donate and you can help make the jewish heroism project spread to the world i'm rob mike foyer thank you for listening this is the jewish heroism project <laughs>